cartoonish way, with Jonah being a typical bearded Old Testament figure, sitting comfortably, if looking a little bit bored, on a whale's tongue or in the stomach, just waiting to be vomited back out onto shore. But I don't think many people understand the book of Jonah. And I don't think many churchgoers probably could tell you much more about it other than the bit about the fish. What I hope to do this evening is dive down to the depths of the book and join Jonah in his plight and show how we can all see ourselves in Jonah. And while navigating the chapter, we can grow to know something more about our God. So January, two weeks in, how many of us have made New Year's resolutions? A few of you. And how many of you have already broken them? Does anyone want to admit that? I know I have. I do it every single year. I say to myself that I'm going to give up anything bad for me in January, and that's a lot of things. But the problem is, there's so much left over from the Christmas holiday. So already, the gym that I go to is starting to get less busy after being packed out after the new year. As humans, we're not very good at keeping the promises that we make to ourselves and making drastic changes. It's well known that breaking our resolutions might have a detrimental effect on our mental health. Mid-January is, some might say, one of the bleakest times of the year. Christmas is over. For those of us who work or go to school, it's the start of a new term. The mornings and evenings are still dark, aren't they? And snow is forecast. But the days are getting longer. The light is returning. Our promises might be easily broken but God's are not, as Jonah 2 tells us. The truth is that all of us, from time to time, get dragged down by the waves and billows of life events. It's inevitable that we're going to face difficulties. Illness, bereavement, loss, disappointment, betrayal, failure, among many, many other things. In any church, or indeed any walk of life, There are going to be people who feel just like Jonah at any time, people that are suffering acutely. Sometimes we might gloss over this and try and focus on what we see as the success stories, the happy coincidences that show that God is working in our lives. One church has a section of the service where people come up to the front to share what God has done this week. And they're inevitably happy stories. They might be babies born after difficulty, new jobs gained, restored relationships, money problems solved, and so on. But what would Jonah say if he'd been somehow invited to share on the stage at the beginning of Jonah 2? He'd probably say something like this. I got a calling from God to go and cry out against the city of Nineveh, but I didn't want to. Nineveh, of all places. So I decided to run away to Tarshish. But God sent a storm and the sailors threw me overboard. I got wrapped in seaweed and I sank down, down and further down to the depths of the sea and drowned. Then a great fish swallowed me up and now here I am in the depths of Sheol. Not an inspiring story at all. Yet. Preparing for the talk, I was struck by two things. The first thing is how utterly and completely human Jonah is. Despite being written 3,000 years ago, Jonah's attitude is thoroughly modern. His response to a difficult and welcome task reflects what psychologists know about human nature. A study showed that 20% of adults are chronic procrastinators, 
meaning that they put off what they need to do in order to do something else which is easier or more pleasant. And yet sometimes we know that our lack of action can have a serious consequence either for ourselves or for others. Perhaps not as drastic for Jonah, but still serious enough to cause problems. A teenager doesn't revise for an exam and might get a poor grade. Or not doing your job properly can lead to, in some cases, catastrophe. I watched a video the other day about how an airliner almost crashed because the engineer decided to look up on the internet how to solve the problem rather than going through the proper steps. Luckily, the pilots landed safely. But imagine how devastating that mistake could have been. Jonah was as human as you and me. He ran from his responsibility. He fled from fear. He sought comfort over conflict. And secondly, I'm struck by the truth that God did not let Jonah go despite his disobedience and his humanity. And there's this mysterious interplay between the grace of God and the role of conscious faith that appears again and again throughout the Bible and in the lives of believers. Without God, Jonah is dead. He has no future. He has no life. He has no breath. He has nothing. He is completely and utterly helpless, lacking in all hope. All is dark. All is lost. There is only death and decay. At the end of chapter 1, it says God provided a big fish. Why did God do that? Could God just not have somehow made it so Jonah washed up onto a beach, coughing and spluttering, but alive and ready to carry on? Well, yes, of course he could. But the fish is significant for two reasons. Firstly, is it's believed that the people of Nineveh worshipped a god called Dagon, who was a fish god. So for Jonah to have been in the belly of a fish for three days and then delivered to their city by a large fish, that would have been incredibly significant and important to them. Secondly, it reinforces the hopelessness and helplessness of Jonah's situation. Without God, there is no coming back from sinking to the bottom of the ocean and being eaten by a large fish. Darkness within darkness and possibly some dismemberment and decay thrown into the mix. Without God, the message of Jonah 2 is that there is no hope. Waters, seas and oceans, they're often used in the Bible as a symbol of turbulent events or of disasters. Reminded of the story of Jesus asleep in the boat when he silences the storm with the word, in Matthew 4 it says that Jesus simply spoke, quiet, be still, and the wind and the waves were still. The men in the boat asked, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? Unlike the men on the boat with Jonah, such a sign of God's power was terrifying. Jonah, having been thrown overboard, experienced the terror and the anguish of drowning, the engulfing waters, the sinking to the roots of the mountains, being wrapped in seaweed, thrashing on the surface, getting entangled, and then sinking beneath the waves. And then, to cap it all off, being swallowed by a huge fish, which God, of course, provided, in the same way that God has orchestrated the whole experience, truly terrifying, poor Jonah. In Jonah's prayer, understandably, he's in great distress. In verse 1, he calls out from the belly of Sheol. That's the utterly dark, empty place of nothingness where it was believed the spirit descends after death. 
Many believe this shows that Jonah had indeed died and was truly dead at this time, meaning that God raised him from the dead when the fish spat him out. Yeah, I think something strange is happening here. Despite this utter hopelessness, Jonah is deliberately praising and giving thanks to God. This chapter is labelled, in in our version of the Bible, a psalm of thanksgiving. This pattern continues throughout the prayer. In verses 2 to 4, it shows how Jonah isn't focusing on, on himself and his own plight, but God's role in what's happened to him. You cast me into the deep. All your waves and your billows pass over me. Jonah says he's driven away from your sight. He's focused on God all the way through. He knows full well why God has done this and what God is going to do next. As humans without God, when faced with such hopelessness, we might think or do a few different things. We might just give up. We might complain, why me? And fall into our own depths of despair, allowing the darkness to overwhelm us. We might try and forget our troubles, make a list of fun things that we want to do, push to the back of our minds our problems for as long as we can. Or we might try and solve whatever it is that's afflicting us by our own free will. We could get a new job. We could find a new relationship. We could move to a new city. Just as popular culture tells us we can, especially at this time of year. But we know, don't we, that even if we try to forget our troubles or solve them under our own effort and our free will, the same slings and arrows, as Shakespeare wrote, might return, or new troubles will almost certainly appear on the horizon. The self-help industry makes millions from convincing people they can find answers and solutions to their troubles simply through their own efforts and free will. The list of the best-selling self-help books of all time include titles such as Think and Grow Rich, or You Can Heal Your Life. They all have in common the theme of suppressing negativity, focusing on the positives through your own action. But Jonah can't read a self-help book to get himself out of the fish. Jonah can't get therapy. He can't meet a friend or eat some cake. All Jonah can do is cry out to God out of his distress. And it's fascinating, isn't it, that Jonah prays as if God has already delivered him. In verse 2 it says, He has answered me. And in verse 6, you brought up my life from the pit. This is before he's been restored to life and vomited out of the fish. From the depths, Jonah is raised. He looks up, even though his body is still in the depths. Jonah looks upwards to his God. He says in verse 9, deliverance belongs to the Lord. So despite his helplessness, Jonah knows that God has delivered him from the depths, and indeed God does so. One of the things I wrestled with uh, about this passage is whether or not God is delivering Jonah because Jonah has prayed this prayer. Is there some kind of bargain or kind of transactional relationship going on? Like many prayers we might pray. Saying to God, if you heal me or you help me in some way, then I will do what you want. Does the impetus or the direction of the prayer come from Jonah himself? And is it only because Jonah has such a strong faith that God delivers him? Or is it the other way around? Is Jonah's prayer given to him by God? Is it simply a gift of grace that Jonah can turn to God in his distress rather than simply giving up? 
The relationship between our faith and God's grace is a mystery. Faith is one side of the coin, what makes us believe in anything. When I get on a plane, I know this basic science of flight and know how skilled and trained the crews and the engineers are and how important safety is, so I might be said to have some kind of faith. But if I'm happily flying along and the aircraft hits severe turbulence, my faith might be quickly forgotten. It would simply be replaced by fear, wouldn't it? So however much I could convince myself it might be okay, I might not feel much better until I'm back safely on the ground. As Christians, we can read the Bible, we can attend church, we can pray, we can have fellowship with believers, and we should do all those things. We might study theology, apologetics, or share the gospel with others. And that might give us knowledge, justification, and foundation that what we believe is true. But when the storms and the waves and the billows come, when we feel like we're wrapped in that seaweed, when we're descending to the depths, when, like Jonah, we're put in a situation that without God there is simply no hope, this knowledge-based faith perhaps isn't enough. So I think the message is that what we need is God's grace. And the wonderful news is that because of Jesus, we've already received this grace. Grace-based faith is a gift. This faith that God has delivered him even before it had happened in space and time was given to Jonah. And Jesus models this for us. In the garden before he's crucified, Jesus cries out in his own distress, not my will but yours be done. In Mark 5, Jesus heals a sick woman, telling her, your faith has healed you. And to Jairus, whose daughter Jesus is about to raise from the dead, Don't be afraid, just believe. Jesus says to the girl, Talitha kum, meaning little girl, arise. And this is the same word that God gives to Jonah after he has been spat out of the fish. Arise, get up, live again. A gift from God. And Paul in Romans 8 tells us that even when we don't know what to do, When we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. He writes, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? Paul goes on to say that the Spirit helps us in our weakness and intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And that Jesus himself intercedes on our behalf. The story of Jonah's prayer from the depths shows us the model for how God deals with us in our darkest times. As Christians, we have this promise. We have grace-given faith that our God will not abandon us, that we can praise him in the dark times as well as the light. Amen.